On September 13th, 2022, we're going to kick off season six of the EO ESOP podcast with very special guest Corey Rosen, founder of the NCEO and co-author of the soon-to-be-published book, Ownership, Reinventing Capitalism, Companies, and Who Owns What. In the meantime, we're going to take a little time off to recharge our batteries and bring you some of our favorite episodes from season five. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the EO Podcast with Brett Keesling, part of the EO Podcast Network. Hello, my friends. Thank you for listening. My name is Brett Keesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. I am joined today by another passionate advocate for employee ownership, Cecile Bettit is an independent researcher who has devoted much of the last decades to studying, talking about, and promoting employee ownership. Cecile, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Brett, I am so pleased to be here. And uh, as from our work, that talking about employee ownership is the gift of the day. We are very fortunate and we share that passion. We're going to start as we do with all of our guests, your EO AHA moment. And then we're actually going to talk about your research and you're kind enough to share your conclusions and what you've learned and what you want us to focus on moving forward. But I've got to ask you a question. You and I have talked offline a bit and through social media. Let's take you back to high school. It's career day. And the guidance counselor says, Cecile, you will be on a Zoom call that will turn into a podcast talking about employee ownership with somebody you met through social media. Has your life panned out exactly as it was mapped out in high school? Given that high school was quite a long time ago, I can tell you that there's been surprise after surprise at what is open. I went to high school, small school in small Catholic high school in Vermont, and I never dreamed the places I'd travel. And most of all, the ideas and the people I would meet along the way. It's been such an adventure. Well, I love that. And we're going to talk about it. And Cecile, one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is we've just met personally through Zoom calls in the last month or two, but you are one of the people that I just call my social media buddies. You've been very supportive on Twitter. You've moved the conversation forward on LinkedIn as well. And I would recommend to folks, they should follow you and engage in the conversation because what you do a great job of is connecting the dots and just moving things forward. So with that, a lot of our guests have had an EO aha moment. And we say, it's not when you heard about an EO and not when you thought this could be good, but was there a moment that really sunk in where you said, aha, this could be transformative? Do you have such a moment? I did actually. The moment was well-prepared, however, with my college education in sociology, primary advocate of social justice. So we marched, we wrote, we did a lot of things to promote actually the kind of equality that we're still struggling for. When I went to Temple University, I was involved in an intergroup relations program that was also trying to promote equality and thought in education and other areas. And then I worked in the inner city and and moved along. For my doctoral work, I did research on the boards of selectmen in Vermont. And I used the attitudes of freedom and equality, attitudes toward social change, which in that time was a movement toward a statewide plan, particularly involving environmental issues, and finished my doctorate 
all of a sudden, one day while I was working on the Leahy campaign as their local coordinator, as I was getting ground, I ran into Bill Karras. And Bill and I started talking. He had been on a board of a college that I had been teaching at years and years ago. And so we just started talking. And then he asked me to read his long-term plan. For those who are listening, Bill Karras, just to be clear, is the founder of Karras Reels. That is as real a deal of an employee-owned ESOP as any that I know. So I just, please continue with the story. You met Bill Karras, but for the listeners who don't know, this is a huge moment. Unless Henry turn over in his grave, Henry was the founder. Bill is the son, and you know how fathers are. Anyway, Bill was the son who purchased, who was raised in the company. The company was like the babysitter, and he loved the men in the shop. In those days, it was all men in the shop. And Bill purchased the company from his father in 1980 for the sole purpose of making an employee-owned and governed as language came a little while later. The idea of, of voice and participation was in Bill's early thing. But Bill's long-term plan was basically a vision, not only at the economic end, and it was very much at the economic end, profit was mentioned many times, but so was the common good, so were values, so was community. And I have to say, after I read it, I could think of nothing else for days. And I thought, this is a real leap, a leap intellectually, a leap socially, and a leap psychologically. And how is he going to pull this off? I could think of nothing else. I was working on the Leahy campaign, which provided a lot of meeting people and doing things and looking at things. And I recognized, and as I went back over my own career at Middle States and all that kind of thing, the people I admired most were people at some level that were doing what Bill Karras had the opportunity and was putting in process. And I really wanted to be a part of it, not to belabor the point, but I had just finished a research project. And so I asked him if I could do the research at, at his company. And he was very much in favor, but not everyone in management was. Cecile, we're going to talk more about Karis Reels. And that's actually what you're here to discuss, your research and the process that went in and importantly, your conclusions. But I just want to comment for a moment about your aha moment, because I've now collected a bunch of them in the last year and people have shared the stories. And what I find really powerful is there are lots of different buckets of the stories, but two of the categories that are distinct are, I got into employee ownership in 08. I did a transaction as outside counsel, became CEO of the ESOP, and then spent seven years as a trustee. My appreciation for ESOPs, quite frankly, were the business side of ESOPs, the transactions, the all of that. And to be honest, I was good at it and I loved it. At a certain point, and having my son work for me for a couple of years, who was a Bernie bro, as they say, and my both of my children love them, passionate, progressive, want to make the world a better place. And as I started looking at values, I realized that employee ownership addressed social issues that were important to me. But then there's you and a bunch of other folks who've been on the podcast that had the social action values that were passionate about your communities, your country, making the world a better place. And then you realized employee ownership addressed those things beautifully. So for me, it's the mirror image of how I came to bringing employee ownership and building the communities. I came the exact opposite path from you. Does that make sense? 
Sure, because there's a wholeness involved. And those of us that are in the social justice sometimes come late to the realization that folk need to be fed and, and housed. And to do that in our current economic states, uh, we need cash. And we haven't yet, we're moving toward electronics. And I don't know how that's going to look down the pike, but we move from people going to war with their uh, gold wagons uh, to plastic. And who knows where that's going to go. But in our culture and in our time, the U.S. and, and the West have very well-developed property rights. We understand capital as it involves those and assets. But we really don't understand and don't respect enough as a culture, I think, the kind of capital that life brings, whether it's human or animal. Humans have never created a natural resource. That's an excellent point. This alone could lead us on a podcast in many conversations. <laughs> oh, no, no, that was me. I asked the question. I love the answer. That was a message to my own self-discipline of, I don't want to in a while say, and let's have you back to talk about your research. But I love this and it is important. And this is the kind of thing that I would someday love to have you back and just move this discussion along because it is very important and the interplay of our values and what we're doing in employee ownership. But with that, where we broke off, and it's probably a good segue, is that you got very excited about meeting Bill Karras and what you read from him. You were invited to do some research and there was some resistance. So talk a little bit, if you can, just frame what you were set up to do and a little bit of the process. Just explain that and then we'll talk about your research. Sure. First of all, Bill didn't invite me, I asked. Excellent, I love that. <laughs> and some of the managers rolled their eyes, some were resistant and some just didn't have any thoughts, but it was arranged. But Bill is, extremely open, which is a great quality as he moved into employee ownership. And so as he was presenting, and part of the time crunch was there was going to be the first statements were going to be issued in March. And I knew that it was important to the research to do the first piece before the statements. So we did this with the first study in February, had a wonderful response. And my goal in moving towards shared ownership was to see part of the research hypothesis was the basis of, of the research question was basically whether or not as people moved into shared ownership, the values would become more social, less individual, more toward the group. With the understanding that as the company moved from everyone out for themselves in a sense, although it was a family-owned business with those kinds of values, and remember that even at the start, there were branches in California, Michigan, Virginia, North Carolina, Connecticut. All of that was in place. Bill and the team had been very careful to make sure that the company was strong. They had good years. They had everything in place and were really working for profitability. And interestingly enough, what many employee-owned companies find is people are afraid. Absolute confidence in Bill Karras and Mike Hearn, who moved from production manager to be. Mike carried the company in his breast pocket. He always had the numbers. He had a, a visceral way of calculating the state of the company on the fly, which was very amazing. And 
And in a sense, they thought differently. And for me, over the course of the research, was watching them work out. And in the similar sense to the way that you came to EO and the way that I came to EO, how they would come together and package a whole. And it was truly an amazing beginning. It was much harder than anyone thought to have people want to be owners. Everyone, I think, in management, most of us watching, and I was doing action research, so I was chatting with people. Most of us thought people would just climb on, but they didn't. It was really hard work. And talented people all around working on this to form this group, to form this way of this way of being together. And consultants came in. And for me, there were pivotal moments when Chris Mackin brought the decision-making model, which used is basically the 30-plus decisions that businesses make. But he had a lovely framework that taught people how decisions were made. And an aha moment in my research was sitting in North Carolina was Lauren Rogers explaining to people as a prototype how the system would work with two tiers for the decision making. One of them was the section that would be in the plant and the section that would be corporate. And these people were sitting there working on the ones that would be in the plant. And the aha moment for me was the recognition that it was the getting deep and dirty that was changing the experience for these people. For them, it was getting involved. It was saying, aha, let's do it this way. And then somebody would chime in and say, but if we do it that way, what are we going to do about this? And I was watching them grow before my very eyes and recognizing that the company was changing for them right before their eyes. They were growing. Let me make one point. Sometimes by the nature of the EO ESOP podcast, we get into the ESOP EO bubble, the prism, if you will. And let me just pause to say this is all in the context of Karis Reels is a phenomenally successful business and they have the model. And I just want to say, sometimes we're focused on the culture and this is all very important, but for the casual listener, this is a crazy successful business. And I just wanted to make that point. And let me add to that. Please. They've had their best months ever in the history of the company this year. Post-COVID, high materials, short labor. And their people made it happen. There are so many different things. And as you're aware of the data and hard data has started to come through, employee-owned companies three to four times less to have layoffs, less likely to have layoffs during COVID. The success is there. Obviously, life is life. And as devastating as COVID has been for so many people, and and those people are in both of our hearts, the reality is from the business model, Hypertherm has done very well, Karis Reels, we could name a lot of them. And it speaks to the strength and the culture. When I was preparing for this conversation, and I thought the serendipity was you meeting Bill Karis. That was fortuitous. The serendipity was you being able to attach prior to that very first meeting. You literally, and I'm just connecting a couple of dots, and the fact that you know how they've done over the last couple of months, you have really not just been a researcher, but now you've attained an archivist or historian of the entire process, the life cycle. Am I right? That was my purpose, actually to be, in a sense, an organizational biographer, what you're calling an archivist, 
to look at the process of their becoming employee-owned. And I might add, the work that many continue not to think is very important because it's only one company. And big researchers want comparative data. They want big data sets. And I understand that. But I also have tremendous respect for history where one person has made tremendous change. So I have to figure that one company might as well. So Cecile, with that, you've been kind enough to prepare an outline of some of your conclusions or thoughts and that sort of thing. So I want to turn it over to you and just have you take us through what you've learned and and what you'd like to share. The first thing is, I think a strong vision is something that you can come back to. It can guide decision-making. It can guide the values. And for Bill in the long-term plan, one thing that he did, which made it look more like a cooperative than Lisa, was one person, one vote which is also the Vermont style at town meeting. One person, one vote. And that was very important. He also began teaching employees that one of his goals was to build wealth, that they wouldn't just have food. And he wanted to build in short-term incentives, as he called them, midterm incentives, and the long-term, which was the ESA. Bill didn't start out with employee ownership of the ESOP. He was looking for a mechanism, and the ESOP was the best for him at that time and for the company. He also worked very hard. Now, this was a company that already was very diverse, racially, language-wise, age-wise. And he made the vision much more inclusive than language of the era, in a sense, of the 80s and 90s. But his mission was to improve the, the life for the growing corporate community. And community for Bill meant everybody that the company touched, the suppliers, the buyers, the neighbors, the people who work there. But as they thrived, so would everyone else. The common good was very common in Bill's language. Early, they developed a system that put everybody in the room. And that is a very important concept. The board of directors, senior management, site managers, elected representatives. And in my notes, if I didn't put in speakers as to who was speaking, I would not know the difference at some points between corporate manager and a plant person on the floor. They were speaking very similar. During the recession, they didn't come together in the room because of of costs. The steering committee provided the whole basis for Bill's vision. At those meetings, finances was gone through ad infinitum. And one of David Fitz's great talents, David Fitzgerald, CFO, vice president now of the corporation, was his ability to bring those numbers to life in a game, in a crazy PowerPoint, but people never forget. And they began to learn. And they went through the whole idea of open book. When they had problems with Vermont tubs at one point, and it was very, very sad, they made sure that people were met with all throughout the company so they would know those problems openly. And they set goals together. The strategic planning process was very much alive. The decision-making that went from the steering committee, the prototype in North Carolina, to the whole company. Everybody in the company had the opportunity to know who was the final decision-maker, who provided input, how was the decision enacted. People knew. And there were these big charts. So if anybody didn't know, they could just look. And that's as open as you can get and transparent. And there was a whole way of an open agenda. Everyone in the company could contribute to the agenda for the corporate steering committee. And the first thing the corporate steering committee came in and they looked at the agenda 
and they would make a decision as to whether it should carry all the way through. In some cases, ideas were felt to be better addressed at the plant level or that people needed more information to be able to address it here. But again, at the moment of that kind of feedback, you didn't know whose role was what and people were learning. That for me was the basis for the corporate governance. Now Karis has employees, one hourly and one salary on the board of directors. And they are full, bona fide, no hindrances kinds of board of directors. The trustees for the ESOP have employees and two managers. And again, it's not a matter of anybody outranking. There's been a real effort in terms of making sure the information is out there. People know how to think about it in terms of criterion for a good decision. And, and they do it. And I think that might be the biggest part of my research. But again, the element that I think carries is the element where we can look at how employee ownership and the employee ownership conversation carries a lot of weight towards social change. As we come out of COVID, we're coming out in a silver tsunami. My generation is retiring all over the some people are saying 10,000 a day. One of the things we have to look at, and I am just started working on this, is that many companies that will become employee-owned coming out of the tsunami are, as Curious Reels was, family-owned. We're not looking at the values of family-owned businesses within the context of ESOPs, of employee-owned. I am astounded at the research, which I've not done a lot of until very recently. The values of family ownership are very much the values of employee And what we're not doing enough of is encouraging that link, which is a very natural, that's one piece that's pulling me. My book on Karis, of course, being a part of all this. But the other piece is that idea of shared ownership and how it encourages people to grow. Our culture, our society, our money-making, will only grow with those who can and those who will. And if we're not building capacity all across the board, nothing else is going to happen. Let me circle back to the board agenda because, and just very briefly, because a lot of times when I talk to people who aren't in employee ownership and they hear about the business model and they don't get it, somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to make a decision. And sometimes I fall into that a little bit myself, where you said anybody can make suggestions for the agenda. And immediately, because I didn't listen, I didn't wait to listen, I was like, that would be bulky. And then you talked about the steering committee and prioritizing what's on the agenda and what's good for the agenda, and then sending some issues back for further study or to different departments. And I'm assuming in the transparency environment, and this is the point I wanted to make that I think is really important. Everybody knew the ideas didn't just go somewhere to die. They probably had a sense that, hey, it didn't make it onto the board agenda, but we've sent it, like, was there some communication so that people had a sense that there wasn't just a vacuum of making suggestions? Yes, let me be very clear. The corporate steering committee is not the board of directors. Correct. That's a group that's made up of a board member, currently Bill Karras, chair of the board, corporate management, site managers, and elected reps. Okay? The board of directors is made up by a group that's elected by the board of directors that includes two employees. The agenda for the corporate steering committee as a representative body is the one 
their employees send ideas for the agenda, concerns that they have that they want. Now, in most cases, as far as my history, in most cases, this has been discussed in-house at a plant meeting, for example, at the site as to whether or not their representative should bring this forward and submit it as an agenda item. And then the group, as it convenes, looks at that and says, we think that maybe the decision should still be made at the plant level. We don't need to be involved, okay? Or we need to have more understanding of what people are seeing as a process here or an outcome. That makes a lot of sense. And I love the fact that the engagement is two-way, that there is a sense that things are moving on. As a trustee, as you can imagine, I did an awful lot of site visits and I've shared this story before on the podcast, but I had one client, 200 employees, financially troubled company in a financially troubled industry. And long story short is one afternoon, the CEO said, Brett, just wander around the plant floor. And I did that. And Cecile, I love to talk to people, but there I'm the trustee. And I showed up and somebody on the plant floor said, hey, I have a complaint. The CEO turned a supply closet into an employee gym and he spent $600 and didn't ask anybody about it. 200 employees in here. The cost was $600, frankly, and people misunderstand the role of the trustee, which is not to micromanage management. But the other thing is it would have raised a yellow flag as trustee if he had converted an employee gym into some other non-employee use. But the fact that they took a supply room and made an employee lounge and gym in it, I'm like, that's a good use. As I explained to him, and as I then explained to the president of the company, this man on the plant floor just wanted someone to express it to. And once he knew that, okay, it made sense, and, and the president was actually okay doing that, in my view as the trustee, the importance wasn't how I answered the question. The importance was he had an opportunity to say something that was then responded to respectfully and appropriately, not the answer he was looking for, but he got value for his input and his opinion. And that's what you're doing there. Yes. And I think that one of the differences here that I just want to bring up, I think that when we start talking about people becoming employee owners, shared owners, we often don't know the leap that is for a person who has never even owned a home. And the whole identity of what does that mean? We don't allow the kind of learning time. I mean, when you look at yourself learning any skill, myself learning any skill or learning about anything new, how long it takes. So learning how to do this, management had a hard time at one point. This was where the decision-making model was very helpful. Because the decision-making model encouraged that a decision needed to be made, which meant that somebody needed a response. Now, in America, until very recently, management did not see part of their role as responding to employee ideas. They would just take them in like a vacuum cleaner. And if they were useful, then they would pull them out of the dirt bag. But otherwise, they wouldn't go anywhere. And it was a learning experience for management to know how important it was One of Bill's goals was to bring employees into the business and to teach them the business. That has been an ongoing goal at CARES, and that's one of the reasons I think they continue to be successful. It's not only that they're transparent and accountable, it's that they teach for understanding in the messiness of democracy and 
all of that, it's very unusual, I think, for people to be willing to deal with the mess of everybody's ideas. But they're willing to. And they've pulled out some wonderful ones over the years. This leads us to one of the themes that I attribute to you on social media. And feel free to take this wherever you would go. But when I got into employee ownership, ESOPs in 08, until the last couple of years, the definition of employee ownership was literally, did you have value in the company? Either an ESOP obviously is the beneficiary of the trust, co-ops is actually a member. Now there's an important discussion that's going on that frankly, the advocates and the researchers like yourself are furthering along that employee ownership as we define it and the values that you and I hold and many others, the fact that there are elements of employee ownership isn't what we're striving for anymore. There must be participation. There must be the democratic voice within employee ownership. Do you see one of our goals to make that stronger connection that just having the shares, getting a statement isn't enough. There needs to be a voice. Yes. I think that in our economy, we have not worked enough for that social element. I think the fact that we can have one person, one vote, and look, this is not a resolved issue, even in our country. Look at the battle that we're doing now in terms of even the voting within our democracy. At my age, I'm astounded at this conversation that we're having as a country and that anyone would would want to bring it into another realm. But I also think that over time, the idea of democracy is very powerful. De Tocqueville said that it was the apex. I'm beginning to think that collaboration and cooperation may be just a hint above, but it takes a big leap. But I think in economic democracy, the idea that everyone has a right to a livelihood, or what the Buddhists call right livelihood, is, I think, a very critical conversation for our time, that employee ownership without voice is better, of course, than not having economic ownership. I'm not going to take that away at all, because it does build wealth. The wages go up because there's no reason for an employer not to pay as much as they can. I come from a state that until very recently, there was not a more ritzy part. My childhood in Vermont, the town drunk and, and the mansion were right on the same street. And they confronted each other all the time. And a real comfort in doing that. Very different than urban America. Now, we have, when I live now, not far from Okemo, where there's been a very big and very ritzy development. Uh, summer homes, you know, third, second homes. But during COVID, of course, they've all become residential. But I think that we need to, to keep working for this idea that everyone has a right to voice and a right to write livelihood. I am really grateful for your time. And this is interesting and would love to have you back at some point and just talk about some of these issues more. One of the other themes I attribute to you on social media is employee ownership and ESOPs really are absent from graduate schools, essentially right now. They're not really taught in a lot of business school programs, law schools, you know, and I graduated law school and was an adjunct law professor for five or six years. Employee ownership isn't on the radar. And that then feeds into academia and the research that will allow us to grow. Because one of the things the practitioners don't realize is we are building much of what the practitioners do on the research. And if the practitioners stop to think about it, they go into 
potential clients who are considering employee ownership and they are dropping data on these clients, it all comes from the research that doesn't come from the practitioners. It comes from you, the folks at Rutgers, all the folks that, that do it. Tremendous work. So I do want to give a shout out and you made the introduction and I'm very grateful. There's an employee owner, they call them associate at Hypertherm. His name is Jamil Husana. And Jamil recently got his doctorate in business administration and his dissertation was on ESOP culture and communication. And he's coming on the podcast somewhere along the lines of when your episode will drop. I'm not sure of the schedule, but he'll be on the podcast. And for me, I've never heard of such a thing, someone doing a dissertation on ESOP. How important is it for us, you, me, and everyone to encourage more of that research, more of the education, and work on immersing the graduate schools in employee ownership? I think it's terrifically important, Brett, and I'm very glad you mentioned it. Through Rutgers, there's a program called CLIO, which is the Curriculum Library for Employee Ownership. Adria Scharf headed a panel last week in the Academy of Management that talked about ways of teaching about employee ownership. And this is terrifically important. My feeling is that in high school business classes, college, graduate school, that Employee ownership should be mentioned as a form of ownership and what it does, how it contrasts, and all of that. Young entrepreneurs need to see this as part of their succession plan. One of the things, and I've talked to Doug Cruz about this uh, on a couple of occasions, in the research that's done, there's a certain elitism. Many of the journals in academia are not available to a state college that doesn't have the money to subscribe to the big data that's available through journals like Emerald, Elsevier. In academia, there are several tiers to the journal, but the colleges buy at the tier that they can afford. And that means that a lot of the great work that's being done by very prestigious researchers is not available. I need to drive to get that. There are other things I can get remotely, but I'm not subscribed. But that becomes a real drawback to this idea that you and I are promoting, which is let's make this as common as sliced bread, as they used to say. And rather than an academic pursuit, what we really want are more employee owners. We want more current owners to be selling to their employees. And the big data is so important because it tells us that it promotes a better society a better country, and that as we build wealth across the board for minorities, for women, for all of those, those are very important data points that you need big data to prove. But at the same time, when that entrepreneur is standing to make a decision, it's one person with one vote to decide what's going to happen to this company. And we need to be much more alert to helping that person make a decision that benefits him benefits his legacy or her legacy and helps their community because we know that business is not going to be sold abroad and that good wages will continue to be paid. And those, I think we need to have more impact driven of employee ownership rather than just a particular piece that we're touting. Is there any final point you'd like to make, anything that would sum up or anything you haven't covered? An ideal scenario for me, Brett, 
would be if the 10,000 people retiring today would sell their companies to the employee owners and, and build their future. And in their retirement, I hope they will talk to high school classes, college classes about why they did this and what it has contributed to their lives, the lives of their employee owners, and the lives in their community. We live in a network. And I think if we can somehow promote that network to be the best we can be and to encourage others to be the best we can be, that that's a lot in one day. Cecile, I want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for the support and interactions through social media. And I always get a little bit hesitant at this moment because I'm just someone who loves to talk about employee ownership and I can't speak for employee ownership. That said, on behalf of employee ownership, thank you so much. Your work is so important. The researchers, the members of academia really are laying the foundation for what all of us are trying to do. And it is important, and we've said it a couple of different ways and in a couple of different times, and I just want to hit the nail on the head. What we are talking about is transcending a good business model. It is about the lives of the employee owners. It's about the community. It's about our country and our world. And it's the understanding that ownership, whether it's property, whether it's a piece of the company, whether it's your own little piece of whatever, that ownership is transformative. And I just want to say thank you because your work is so important in what we're all trying to build. And I'm grateful. And you're a delightful person to talk to. This has been such a treat for me. I appreciate you. Keep doing it. There are three or four different podcast episodes from this conversation that we could have whole conversations. So I hope down the road a little bit, you'd be kind enough to come back. Thank you so much. Of course, I will. With that, folks, we are going to wrap up today's episode. I am so grateful to Cecile Bedett for joining me. And folks, I'm just the luckiest person in the world. I really spend so much time just talking to people like Cecile and then talking to you about employee ownership and, and my life and my heart is full. So thank you so much for listening. I'm grateful to you all. This is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at EO Podcast Network and on Twitter at ESOP Podcast. This podcast has been produced by Brett Kiesling for the EO Podcast Network. Production assistance by Victoria Huerta. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Branding and marketing by Bitsy Plus Design. And I'm Bitsy McCann.